You are listening to a podcast from Rocky Mountain Christian Ministries. For more information about our church, please visit us at rmcmchurch.org. So today, how much time do we have? A lot. Good deal. Because I have a lot to cover. <laughs> I hope you're ready to uh, engage. Because I, I, we, we kind of, to bring this whole thing together, I have to go through a lot of scripture. So we're probably going to do a lot of reading. You're going to do a lot of listening. Um, and we're going to, some of it we're going to read. Some of it we're just going to go over because there's just too much. But I just want you to listen to what we're saying today. Grab, you know, take some notes, and then you can go back to these chapters and really think about the point that I feel like the Lord has us uh, on today. So we've been talking about faith and expectation. We could say hope, but this this feels more like what we expect when we pray. For example, do we expect? God to do what he said he'd do in his word. Do we, where, when, we, when we come into a time of, of uh, worship and together, do we expect Jesus to show up? I feel like several weeks ago, you know, the Lord started talking to me about we need to raise our expectations of him. Again, we said not in, a, um, not in an ugly way, you know, not in a, a, a way of that's presumptuous, but just God said it we're going to expect it, all right? So, and that goes right along with faith. So that's, that's the overall subject we've been talking about. I want to talk to you in that vein today uh, about the God. I'm just going to start out with this. God has defined himself as the God who is more than enough. We're just going to look at those verses and a couple others so that we, we come to this. It's like, okay, if God is the God who's more than enough, if his word never fails, if it always produces what he said it would produce, then where should my expectation be? Okay. Uh, and then I want to go look at uh, some instances in the Gospels where their expectation, all of our expectation, let's, let's put it this way, our expectation toward God, all right? it will be determined by our revelation of his nature because we need to know it's his nature to heal. It's his nature to forgive sin. It's his nature to draw us into relationship. It is his nature to show mercy. It is his, his nature to be just. It is his nature. All these things, it's not just stuff we like to get from God. It's not just stuff he does occasionally. It's really hard to expect something from God that we know is, I mean, you can't expect something that you know is outside of his nature. And we can go through life not really knowing his nature and therefore not expect a lot of things from him. A lot of people think that healing in particular is something that God does sometimes. And sometimes he doesn't, sometimes he doesn't. But he revealed himself to Israel with the name, I am the Lord God who heals you. I am, I am Jehovah Rapha. I am the Lord God, your healer. And so it's a part of his nature to heal, all right? He is the great physician. It's who he is. And so just that as an example, to understand God doesn't just give to us, he's generous by nature. So that impacts what we expect and how much of it we expect, okay? And apart from that, so we've got to have those revelations of God's nature. And I just wanted you to have these verses today, Genesis 17, 1 and 2. 
he came to Abram. And this is kind of interesting because there's two different names used here. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, so that was Yahweh, or we say Jehovah, uh, that was how they knew God at that time. That was his name. And you got to understand that in the, in the Jewish mindset, a name represents the person, the character, who they are. Not, it's not just a tag, okay? It, it, it represents who they are. So the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai. I am, so, he's, so, so the God that Abram knew by one name is now coming and presenting himself, presenting a new aspect of his nature through another name. And, and that in the Hebrew, it's El Shaddai, or that's how we say it. I am the almighty God, walk and live habitually before me and be perfect, blameless, wholehearted. That word perfect, wholehearted is a really good, he, he's saying, this is who I am. I am the all-sufficient one. That name El Shaddai means I am the all-sufficient one. I am the one who provides all things. It means I am the God who is more than enough. More than enough. So, so we are never called, we do not find in the scripture a place where we are called to a life of barely get by. And that's a big theology for a lot of people. God, I mean, how many of you heard that? I heard it all the time growing up. God will meet your needs, but just barely and at the last minute. And that was perceived as his nature. And yet he revealed himself as, I'm the God who's more than enough. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. It's this ongoing, more abundantly, all right? There's, 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 it's not there's never enough, but it never runs out. The expansion never runs out in him. And we just don't always have that kind of idea. But this is, what, this is how he uh, revealed himself to Abram here. And so it's important for us in the terms of expectation that we understand who God is. He's not looking to, he, he loves to bless us. But that blessing, it, it's, it's to bless us, but it's going to be more than enough and he didn't like the guy who just built bigger barns to take care of the more than enough, to take care of the bigger harvest, right? I'll just build big barns. I will kick back. I will eat, drink, and be merry. I'll entertain my friends. It'll be awesome. You know, it's all about me. Didn't particularly care for that guy. Talk to him about the fact that you're wasting your life. I'm paraphrasing here because... This life is just this life, but you're cashing in eternal life to have a bunch in the bank, okay? So the point was, yeah, big harvest, abundance, all those things are a part of the Lord, but he told, he also told Abraham in Genesis 12 too, honestly, the bottom line of the covenant we live in is he said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. All right, so our expectation toward God should always be whatever we're thinking is coming from the Lord, he's leading us into, there should be more than enough. It's never just about us. It's always partly to be able to give, to be able to pour out, to be able to help other people, um, to be able to employ, you can bless your business. Well, then you can employ other people. I mean, there's just so many ways this whole thing applies. He takes care of us so we can take care of others. I'll bless you and you'll be a blessing. Second Corinthians 
uh, chapter 9, verse 8. I love this. It just embodies, and this is talking about finances, but it applies everywhere. It says, God is able to make all grace, every favor and earthly blessing come to you in abundance so that you may always, under all circumstances. Man, that's one we've got to get, under all circumstances. This verse doesn't go away when a pandemic hits. This verse doesn't go away when the economy is good. This verse doesn't go away when there's a Republican in office or a Democrat in office. This verse doesn't go away when there are no shipping containers and nobody can figure out how to move everything around the world. This verse doesn't go away. He says, I can make all grace, every favor and earthly blessing come to you in abundance so that you, so that, so that you may always, under all circumstances, and whatever the need, be self-sufficient, possessing enough to require no aid or support, and furnished in abundance for every good work and charitable donation. So I just want this in our minds as we go on. This is who God is. He is here to provide and to provide more than enough. Spirit, soul, body, financially, whatever, relationally, God is the God who is more than enough. You got that part? Oh, I'm glad somebody did. That's good, because we're moving on. Go over to Mark chapter 6 with me. Mark chapter 6. And we are going to read through uh, a number of verses here. So get ready for that. And, uh, and we're going to pick this apart a little bit, but I just want to get the big ideas out. Just like I say, we've really got to look at kind of a big context here. Mark chapter 6. So... First of all, as you're turning there, I want you to remember that earlier in this chapter, Jesus assigned the disciples to start going out ahead of him. And he gave them the authority and the power to undo the works of the devil, essentially, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to preach the gospel. So the people we're talking about in this verse have already received power and authority. They're still working under Jesus' anointing, okay? They're still working. The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. The Holy Spirit is not living in them, right? But they're working under Jesus' anointing. They are learning, but he's already assigned them and he's already given them power to carry out the assignment and to do the things that he'd been doing, all right? So that all happened earlier in the, earlier in the chapter. And I want you to pick up in verse 32 with me. And we'll read down quite a ways. It says, And they departed into a desert place by ship privately, and the people saw them and departing. Let me back up. So he sent them out with power, with authority. They came back, started talking about all the great things that God had done through them, what they'd seen, what they'd taught. And they were all exhausted. They were all tired. So they tried to go. Jesus tried to get them away to what was essentially a resort area in the time so they could get some rest and the people beat them there. And so when they got there, there were all these crowds. Okay. And, the, and we're going to see this twice really. But, but so uh, again, verse 32, they departed into a desert place by ship privately and the people saw them departing and many knew him. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I won't be able. That was, uh, that was King James version. And I simply will not be able to read it. So uh, I have to start over. No, I don't. Verse 33. The multitude saw them departing and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. 
And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. I love that. You know, here they were. They're out in a desert place. They're confused. All this stuff's going on. What does he do? He gives them the word of God. That's just so good. When the day was far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place. I'm sure he didn't know that yet. And the hour is uh, already late. Send them away. All right. This is our, their first response to the need. The disciples' first response is send them away. Okay. So that they can meet the need themselves. So they can use their resources and go get some food and get rest. Send them away. All right. Well, that's not, that's not an evil response. It was just the first thing they thought of was, all right, Jesus, it's late. We're still tired. They don't say that, but I suspect it was there. We're still tired. They beat us here. We never did get our rest. They're hungry. Send them away so that they can, so that they can get fed. That's their, their first idea, okay? So he says, send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. But he answered them and said to them, you give them something to eat. So Jesus brings the assignment back to them. All right. He says, no, we're not going to send them away. You guys give them something to eat. So he, he puts the assignment. He's, he's in this place in his ministry where he's trying to train these disciples to trust God and expect more. And so he brings it back. No, not sending them away. You give them something to eat. That isn't a, uh, I don't believe that's a, you know, sometimes people want to make doctrines out of these individual things. This is the way it always is. You know, if anybody has a need, you better meet it. Well, I don't believe that's an overall doctrine, but that was his training at this point. That's what he was telling them and for a specific purpose. Okay. So, so their second response is, they said to him, so shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Essentially, they're saying, do you really know what you're asking us? Are you really thinking about this Jesus. We have this much money. We could do it. We apparently have the money in the treasury. Is that really what you want us to do? Empty the whole treasury to go meet these people? I find sarcasm in this question, in this question coming back to Jesus. So that's kind of their, their second response is, you know, that it's a little sarcastic. Do you really want us to go spend all the ministry's money to feed these people? Is that what you're saying? Jesus. Okay. And so he just keeps going like he always does. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? All right, he brings it right back to them again. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. And then he commanded them to make all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and the two fish he divided among them all. So they ate, so they all ate and were filled. That verse is one that I go back to a lot, you know, because there's something more going on here than just getting filled up. There's something more than just, there's a spiritual filling, I, I think, here. There's something, that, that term, it says filled. A lot of our translations say satisfied. There was a satisfaction that came. And I, and I just really believe there was more going on here than just getting some bread and fish. 
And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments. So that's essentially one each, right? And of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. It's really 5,000 families, essentially. And there, there might have been singles there, but you know we all know these types of verses. They just counted the men. It was just part of the society. They didn't count the women and the kids. So there were a lot of people there, all right? And so here's this, so here's this big miracle that takes place. It takes place, and we've talked about this many times. I know you guys are familiar with this, but just think about it with me today. The way it takes place, Jesus, they give what they have. Tiny little bit, totally impossible to meet the need, but they give it to Jesus. Jesus gives thanks before the miracle. That's so important. Faith always does that. Gives thanks before the miracle. He hands it back to the disciples and they hand it out. And so the multiplication happens as they're handing it out, possibly as the people eat it. Had to happen as they're handing it out or they wouldn't have even been able to hand it out to everybody. So the point is, very hands-on. He includes them. They didn't just see him do something. They experienced this miracle. They were there. It was an encounter. They, it happened in their own hands. All right? Verse 45, you still with me? Immediately, oops, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to a mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on land. Then he saw, he had to have seen this in the spirit, he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. So here they are. The wind is against them. They go out there already tired. I've, never, I've not seen a break yet for them. And they went away for rest. But anyway, they're out there. And big wind comes against them. Their response is, let's do what we've always done. You know, we've, we're a bunch of them are fishermen. Let's row. And so they put their effort into obeying what Jesus told them to do after just experiencing this big miracle and other miracles, after he sent them into these villages, seeing demons cast out, seeing these different things happen, spend time with Jesus, he multiplies the bread through them. All this is, is, should be multiplying in their consciousness that God is a big provider, okay? But when they hit the next challenge, they handle it the way they've always handled it. They can't use the sails, they're going straight into the wind, so they row. So they work hard all night trying to do what Jesus told them to do. It doesn't seem to ever enter their mind to use the authority that they have to get themselves across the lake. Instead, they use their own powers. It makes sense to you. Okay? So it says now about the fourth watch of the night, which is really just before dawn. Watch this. He came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. There's a couple places like this in the scripture. There's another one on the road to Emmaus where he met with these people. He talked with them and they're going. And he was just going to keep going. And they had to talk him into staying with them that night and talking to him more. He, he was just going to walk right by. He's, walk, he's walking in miraculous power. They're out there straining at the oars. And he would have just gone right by them. He didn't go out and jump in the boat until he was invited which is really interesting to me, or at least until they freaked out. 
So when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. I, I can understand that. But immediately he talked with them and said, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he, so he went up into the boat, the wind ceased, and it says, this is, this is, get this, it says, they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. That's the New King James. I looked that up, and it's one of those passages in the scripture that emphasizes the same thing over and over and over. It, it says they were, we would say they were super amazed. They were beside themselves. They were outside themselves with amazement that it was Jesus. He walked on the water and the wind stopped. And they're shocked. They're absolutely shocked. And, they're, and they have this sense of awe and wonder. And it says the reason they were so amazed, I mean, we think that's cool. I'm amazed at Jesus too. But the scripture says they had this massive, practically out-of-body experience amazement for they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. So in other words, they were supposed to get a lesson out of that miracle. It wasn't just the miracle. It wasn't just feeding people. That was the miracle. But there was a lesson in the miracle that they didn't get. Otherwise, I, I think at this point, they'd have been grateful. They probably would have... Uh, they probably would have done something different anyway up front. They probably would have at least attempted to take authority over that wind, you know, but instead they waited for him. They moved into fear. Uh, you know, they didn't know where he was. Then, he's, then they think he's a ghost. Then they freak out. Then he gets in the boat and then they're just shocked at the result of that. And it says it was because they didn't get it about the miracle. And that's kind of the point. I think that's really the only point. I'm going to take longer doing it. But I really feel like that's the point we're supposed to get this morning. I think every act of favor that comes into our life, every time God presents himself, every revelation that comes, every miracle that we see, every, everything we experience with him, it in itself is a big deal. But there's a lesson in it about God's nature. We've said this many times. We talk about signs and wonders. Signs always point to something real, something solid. The signs out here that say, welcome to Gunnison, okay? The sign isn't Gunnison, but it points to Gunnison. The sign out here, Crested Butte, 28 miles. That's not Crested Butte. That sign is not Crested Butte. Does everybody know that part? Okay. But it points to something that exists, and it's the same thing when the Lord does something like this. He multiplied those loaves. That was awesome. But contained in that experience was the knowledge God provides. And he provided more than enough. They picked up a bunch of leftovers. And so they went through all that, went right out in the boat, totally forgot the whole thing or didn't know to bring it forward. And I think that's where we miss it a lot. We're, we're just... We love what God does, and that's wonderful. We're grateful for what God does. But we sometimes then, we, we just want the next thing. We don't take the time to say, what does that say? Let me just soak in this for a little while. 
What does that say about you? Because that sign, that wonder, that miracle points to you. And I need my determined purpose is to know him, right? That's what this is about. Only out of knowing him do we minister effectively with him. Only out of our revelation of him will we have the right expectations toward him. Does it make sense? Yeah? Okay. So, so here they go. They go through all of this. And then he, and we're just going to go on. He heals a bunch of people. We're going to go up to Mark chapter 8. Okay, jump up to Mark chapter 8. You can read through later. You can read through 7 and the first part of uh, chapter 8 and all of this. I mean, um, you know, he, he heals. All these things continue to happen, right? Uh, let's see. I guess I never did. You got all this probably if you took any notes. But we're moving on to Mark chapter 8. I forgot to move the screen. Sorry. Um, so in Mark chapter 8, we find deja vu all over again, okay? Um, beginning in verse 1, just look at this in light of what we just read. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? You wouldn't think they'd still have this question. You know, last time it was, well, we've got enough money if you really want us to spend it. Why don't you just send them away? This time it's, we're in the wilderness. Jesus didn't know that, obviously. You know, they had to tell him. You're in the wilderness, Jesus. How could somebody have bread? How could somebody feed these people in the wilderness? You know, and I'm not being critical. I know we're this dumb too. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, here it is. That we're gonna, the exact same set of things. He takes them through them again. The exact same things, you know. And, and so they ask, how can this happen in the wilderness? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? You'd think this would start to register right here. You know, it would be like, I know I've seen this movie before. You know, I, I know I've seen this before. What was the ending? You know, what happened? So how many loaves do you have? They said seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves. He gave thanks before the miracle. It's the exact same process. He gave thanks. Isn't he patient though? Don't you love this? He did it all again with the same people. I need that. So I love this. Okay, I'm not being critical here. It's just when you read about it later, I'm glad they don't get to read about our lives later. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't need to be in the book. Uh, so he, he took the seven loaves and he gave thanks. He broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them, to set before the people. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, were satisfied. And this time they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, really 4,000 families or somewhere in that neighborhood. And he sent them away. Immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha or something. Uh, 
And so, and, and here's the other part that I love in this, in this passage. Notice verse 11. Then, after he just did all of this, after he just multiplied the loaves, after all these people ate, after he dismissed them, after that miracle happened, then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking a sign from heaven. All right, so here they come. So this is an important passage right here. So they've just seen all this happen, didn't participate in it, no doubt, but we're watching it with a wrong heart attitude. They see all of this take place, and no doubt there's a lot of history to this. They know about the healings or have witnessed the healings. They know about all these other things that are going on. And yet in the face of all of that, they say, you need to give us a sign from heaven. And Jesus replies to them, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. That term generation there, I don't believe, it doesn't speak of, uh, you know, an, an age group of people. I think he's referring specifically to this group of people with those hard hearts that, are, that have something going on in them that when they see what Jesus is doing, are still asking for a sign from heaven. They're not receiving what he's doing as a sign from heaven, all right? And again, none of us are, are exempt from this possibility, all right? So, uh, so here we are. So the Pharisees have asked this. He's had this encounter with them. And he left them, the Pharisees, and getting into the boat again with the disciples, departed for the other side. So again, I don't mean to belabor this, but we've seen the multiplication of the bread again, in the same way that it happened again, they've participated in it again. And then they get into a boat to go to the other side again. Yeah, again, it's like, this has got to start to ring a bell. You know, somewhere along here, it's got to start to sink in. Verse 14, now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than the one loaf with them in the boat. What they do with seven baskets, I have no idea. But they had one loaf with them. They forgot to take bread. Okay. Then he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. All right. So what he says to him is, you know, we think about leaven. Leaven is a, a small thing that you put inside a big lump of dough and it affects the whole lump. It is something that happens on the inside of us that affects our whole being. Jesus used this analogy. And he gives us these two things, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The first one is a religious spirit that a legalistic religious spirit that is completely blind to actual spiritual activity. The leaven of the Pharisees. They were so involved in their religion and that was so deep on the inside of them that when somebody begins to work miracles and preach with authority in a way that nobody's ever heard and heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse the lepers and all of this, they're still asking for a sign from heaven. A sign they would accept. All right, you, you, that's, that's all great, Jesus, but I don't know what the sign would be to them but they wanted something done specially for them and they wanted something done that they would accept, all right? That was a religious spirit. And Jesus says, watch out for that as a leaven in your life. Don't take that spirit on the inside. It'll act like leaven. It'll, it'll completely change 
the way you view the outside. Just like those guys, we just watched all this, give us a sign. They're blind to spiritual activity, even though they were deeply religious people. Okay, does that make sense? And then he says the spirit of Herod, which it's a political spirit, and a political spirit seeks to divide people, seeks to separate us all into our little groups and get us you know, in contention with each other. I mean, we're seeing this in our nation so big right now, political spirit. And if we get sucked into that, then we start following uh, that. We, we, which, whichever side doesn't matter. There's a spirit behind it that wants to get hold of your life and pull you out of kingdom activity into just political earthly activity. It wants to reduce you down to thinking that's the answer to things. All right, and we didn't see an example of this earlier in this particular passage. We saw the Pharisees, but he puts them both together, which is really interesting from Jesus. He said, watch out for the leaven of uh, the Pharisees and watch out for the leaven of Herod. And I think all of us living in the day we live in this nation, we, can, we know what that feels like and we're all susceptible to it. We can get pulled into that political spirit where we are way too politically focused and, and it draws us all up into our camps. It draws us all up into our individual little identities. It separates people, which the Bible teaches there's a lot of power in agreement, prayers of agreement, When people come together in agreement, there's a lot of power in that. So if the devil can get us all divided into little camps over earthly things, we're not going to be united toward kingdom things. And so he just robs us of a lot of power and just lets us run around like a bunch of chickens, you know, and, uh, and, and that's fine with him. And he, and again, I've said this many times, stole it from Bill Johnson. He doesn't care how right you are if he can get you to use your rightness in an ungodly way. You know, he doesn't care if you're right politically. He doesn't, the devil doesn't, he doesn't care. If he can just get you to be ungodly, his goal's done. I don't care which side you're on. All this gets, all this gets burned up. This stuff is not, I know it's important in our daily lives. I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved at all. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that should not be the dominant feature of our heart attitudes and our thinking. Our, our lives are eternal and we are about an eternal kingdom. We're not just about this thing. So, so he tells them, he says this to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. And he, you know, he probably knew, I mean, I know he knew, but he probably used this particular terminology because they're back there worried because they didn't bring bread. You know, their brain is, is on Bread and a lack of bread. Still, we didn't bring bread. Oh no! And and in verse sixteen it says, "They reasoned among themselves, saying, it's because we don't have any bread. It's because we have no bread.' You know, I I don't know what he's talking about, but he's mad. Jesus is ticked because we didn't bring bread. We've only got one loaf. It's amazing." that they can still be in that mode after feeding 5,000 and then feeding 7,000 and being involved in that. And again, I don't say this. I think we're susceptible. I think the reason the Holy Spirit put it in the book is because we're susceptible to this same thing. They reasoned among themselves. You just hear them whispering back there. It's because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, I hate conversations like this with Jesus, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? 
this is really interesting. Having eyes you do not see. All right, so he's saying you're not seeing spiritually. Having ears you do not hear, perceive what the Spirit is doing. Okay? And you do not remember. That word remember um, means, it, it remembers good, but it means a little more than that. It means to, to on purpose call something to mind. Okay? to bear or keep something in your mind or to exercise the memory. No doubt they remember the miracle. No doubt they know they were involved. They remember what happened. But he's saying, you don't, you're not actively remembering what the miracle meant, what happened there. And he says, so he says, having eyes, you do not see. Having ears, you do not hear. And you do not remember. When I broke the five loaves for, and he takes them back through it. I love his faithfulness. I just love it. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said 12. They got that. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? So the point of all of this, as I've already said, is if our expectation toward God is going to be on the level, we're going to have to deal with the stuff we talked about last week. We're going to have to learn how to deal with loss. We're going to have to learn how to talk with or walk through delayed prayer, what we perceive as unanswered prayer, that kind of thing, you know, delay in our lives, things not happening on our timetable. I I don't remember, I think we didn't talk about last week, but betrayal can really get us in this area where it changes our expectation of God. What I I brought to you this morning and and what Elena talked to us about, fear in our hearts and and that fear of stepping out and taking a risk again because we experienced a hurtful loss, those are big deals as far as our expectation of God. But on the sort of positive end, every encounter, every encounter, every when he brings you a revelation, we've got to learn to bear it in mind, to carry it forward. And when something else comes up in life, I think what happens so often is we just, It might surprise us. It might scare us. It was unexpected, whatever. And we get focused on the problem again. And we were, I I don't know. I think as Westerners, we're just kind of bad about taking time and stopping and remembering who God is. What is his nature? Even before I get to, Lord, what what do you want me to do here? which can be a big question. But even before that, Lord, who are you in this situation? Remind me, Holy Spirit, remind me. Obviously, he's very willing to remind. You know, I don't think he gets upset about that, but he does want us to take the time to actively recall, actively remember. Lord, I remember when you did this. May not, I may not get the answer to what I'm facing right now even. right? I might not at this point but I'm going to recall what you did and what it says about who you are. And I'm going to build those memories. I'm going to build those testimonies as a foundation on which I stand. And, you know, I've told you this before. 
for myself. I don't know why I'm this way. I, I go through life. I mean, from the time I was a kid, you know, I have a lot of memories from childhood, but people I grew up with and stuff, they post things and they're like, oh, remember when we did such and such? I don't have any recollection of that. If it wasn't, sounds so awful and it probably is. So, oh, well, you know me. If it wasn't meaningful to me, I just kind of go by it. I just kind of let it go. And I mean, the stuff with God's pretty meaningful. And and I do remember that, but I'm I'm not good. It, it just feels to me like Karen has a way better memory. She just remembers the details of stuff we did and people we interacted with. And then when she says it, it's like, oh yeah, I forgot all about that. You know, I don't know, but it's something I have to work on in myself to take time to recall and to remember and ask. And the Holy Spirit will help us with it. We just have to ask him. But otherwise we get fixated on, again, on the loss or on whatever. We can really get kind of shipwrecked in that and lose our expectation. And somewhere in that is is where innocence plays in, that we need to be able to remain innocent in life, in our hearts. We need to maintain childlike, innocent hearts as we grow up and everything doesn't go our way. You know, and that's really, I mean, that kind of the difference. I mean, it's easy for kids. They haven't been hurt yet. You know, maybe that's too cheap a thing to say. But, you know, I mean, it's easy to be a kid when you're a kid. But Jesus calls us to be kids our whole lives. Not irresponsible, but you know what I'm saying. Innocent hearts, full of joy, full of expectation. That's that's a heart that gets us places with God. So we've got to be able to work through all these other things and come back to that place and know how to remember to bring these things up. Because again, every miracle contains a lesson that points. And I, and I say miracle, I think every encounter, every act of favor, every single thing he does, it's why it's so important for us to have a testimony and to have some things written down and to thank him profusely for the small things, what seems small things in our lives, because those become the foundation on which we stand, okay? And if we don't accept or open our heart to the lesson that's in a miracle, then we're, we're reduced to just celebrating the effect of the miracle, and I don't, that's not what we're supposed to do. The effect of the miracle is wonderful and we're thankful for it. The healing, the person's body got healed. We can rejoice in it. It's awesome. Okay, but there's a lesson that's even more important than the effect. And we don't want to, if, if we live just off the effect, oh, I saw this. We become those people that follow ministries around and, and we just want to see miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, but we never grow up. And, and, that's out there, you know, in our circles of Christianity, that's out there. And we just become people that kind of follow after signs and wonders instead of signs and wonders following after us. Is this making any sense to you at all? Okay. So I just think we've got to celebrate every act of favor, every blessing, every encounter, and and do whatever it takes in your heart, in my heart, in our lives I married somebody that remembers everything. So see, I don't have to write anything down. Yeah, see, that's the real key, guys. No, I'm just kidding. We've got we've to, in our lives, you know, do what it takes and take the, I think it's so much of it, I'm trying to stop here. 
So much of it, I think, is it's time. It's just our, the way we function. We're just running from one thing to another. And to have that time when something big happens, then afterwards to process and say, God, man, you did this. Show me, you know, again, what that means about you. Because my goal is to know you. Whatever comes out of that is fruit. But the center of our lives is knowing him. Does this make sense? All right. Um, I think we're done. Er, I think we're done. (laughs) All right. So I'd go back and read through those chapters some more. There's a lot of good stuff in there, but... I just felt like that point was what God wanted for us today. Father, thank you. You're you're so good. And Lord, I love the fact that your word is alive and that as we read it, we're not just we're not just learning facts about you, Jesus, but we encounter you in your word and we encounter you in all these experiences that you do, the things you do with us and help us, Lord, to recognize even those, just those little blessings to recognize, Lord, things that are blessings and not take them for granted. To recognize there doesn't have to be hot water coming out of the tap, but there is. Lord, I just want to be grateful for everything that you do and the abundance that you provide. And in that, we need to know who you are. You are the God who is more than enough. So wherever there might right now be a lack in our life, God, we trust it will be filled and it will be filled to overflowing so that we can give out of that area, whether that's a heart area or whether that's a physical area. God, we set ourselves to be generous people because we know behind us is a supply that will be more than enough And Lord, wherever you need to convince us, wherever you need to change our hearts and transform us in that, we're open to it. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand up. We're going to be dismissed. Did we surprise Children's Church? Ah, not by much. They'll get over it. All right. Sometimes we get done early and they're like, ah. All right, doesn't happen often. Let's, uh, so three minutes. You owe me three minutes right here, okay? Let's say it on the count of three. Jesus is Lord over the Gunnison Basin and the world will be dismissed. You guys go out there and be the church. One, two, three. Jesus is Lord over the Gunnison Basin and the world. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Rocky Mountain Christian Ministries in Gunnison, Colorado. We hope you will visit us at rmcmchurch.org, like our Facebook page, or subscribe to our messages on YouTube.